So I want to begin where we just ended and uh, introduce uh, our topic tonight by way of reminder that the doctrine of election is uh, an encouraging doctrine. It's meant to be an assuring uh, and affirming doctrine for Christians. And I think um, it's a shame that so much of evangelicalism has uh, abandoned or never held to uh, the doctrine of election and predestination. Now, we, I think, can thank the Lord that there has been, I think, in the last 12, 15, 20 years, and a bit of revival with regard to the doctrine of election. That is, that a lot of, um, of our Baptist brethren are finding again the doctrines of grace. I think we should thank the Lord uh, for that. A lot of community churches, independent churches, also have been um, bringing back this doctrine, and um, as we should, because it's right there in Romans 9, it's right there in Ephesians 1, and in other places as well. Let me read you a famous Baptist on this subject here. I'm going to give you several quotes from Charles Spurgeon, because if uh, there are any Baptists out there who... Uh, maybe are sitting on the fence. I want to read. I want to start by reading you a Baptist who uh, held to the doctrine of election. Uh, Spurgeon says this: "It is no novelty then that I am preaching, no new doctrine. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines that are called by the nickname of Calvinism." but which are truly and verily the revealed truth of God, as it is in Christ Jesus. He goes on, he says, I have my own opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified, unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism, however, is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect, and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. That's from volume one of the new Park Street pulpit, which he preached that sermon in 1856. Let me read you another one. This one is from volume three of the new Park Street pulpit. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul. When they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect, rec recollect how I felt that I had grown all of a sudden from a babe into a man, that I made progress in scriptural knowledge, 
through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God, says Spurgeon. That was from his autobiography in the early years, published by Banner of Truth. George Whitfield said, we are all born Arminians. <laughs> it is grace that turns us into Calvinists. Again, quoting from Spurgeon, Calvinism did not spring from Calvin. We believe that it sprang from the great founder of all truth. And then again, I do not come into this pulpit, says Spurgeon, hoping that perhaps somebody will of his own free will return to Christ. My hope lies in another quarter. I hope that my master will lay hold of some of them and say, you are mine and you shall be mine. I claim you for myself. My hope arises from the freeness of grace and not from the freedom of the will. Again, Spurgeon from his sermons, I believe that Christ came into the world not to put men into a salvable state, but into a saved state. Not to put them where they could save themselves, but to do the work in them and for them from first to last. If I did not believe that there was might going forth with the word of Jesus, which makes men willing and which turns them from, error, from the error of their ways by the mighty, overwhelming, constraining force of divine influence, I should cease to glory in the cross of Christ. A man is not saved against his will, but he is made willing by the operation of the Holy Ghost. A mighty grace, which he does not wish to resist, enters into the man, disarms him, makes him a new creature of him, and he is saved. And then finally here, I question whether we have preached the whole counsel of God unless predestination with all its solemnity and sureness be continually declared. From Spurgeon, volume six of his sermons. So there you have a well-known Baptist uh, and Anglican quoted to you on the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election we find in Ephesians 1 as one of our texts. Again, I read from verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we see that election, or that is, as Paul puts it, to be chosen. He chose us in him. That's why R.C. Sproul has a book called Chosen by God. All spiritual blessings are found in Jesus Christ. But these blessings were secured even before the foundation of time. We have been secured in Christ in the beginning, in that it was God's choice of us from the beginning. He chose you in Jesus Christ before the creation, before there was a star, before there was a sun or a moon, before there was anything. When it was just God in his triune council, he chose you in Christ. The Father chose you specifically 
of the three persons of the Trinity. It was the first person of the Trinity that chose you in the second person of the Trinity. The Father chose you in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that we see in Ephesians 1 is how many times Paul uses that little phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Election has to be rightly understood. It has to be understood that the people of God are chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, therefore, are not chosen in themselves, nor are they chosen, nor are we chosen for ourselves. We are chosen by God for God's glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the people of God in Christ. And that is by virtue solely of who Christ is and what he would do on behalf of his people. Now, many people want to distort the doctrine of election. But the doctrine of election is one of the most comforting of all doctrines. And it is also one of the most humbling of all doctrines. This is probably why it creates so much discomfort, is because man can take no part in the glory of his own salvation. There is nothing we can boast in except in God and his grace alone. And so some people try to redefine election and predestination in ways that um, I think do an injustice to the sovereignty of God and to the glory that God is to be given. We are accepted by God because of Christ. We have been chosen by the Father for Christ. We need to remember that even as Paul began this epistle in verse 1, he said he was chosen as an apostle. But notice here, he said, by the will of God. Now, let me ask you a question here tonight. Tell me where in the Bible you find any hint that the Apostle Paul wanted to become a Christian when he was persecuting the church. Where do you get any indication that somewhere deep down within Paul, he all along wanted to become a follower of Jesus? Was it while he was standing by and holding the coats of the people? while Stephen was being stoned? Was it while he was breathing out murderous threats, locking up men and women in prison? Was it when he was getting permission from the Sanhedrin to arrest believers? Was it on the road to Damascus as he was going to arrest even more men and women? There is no inkling in the Bible that Paul came to Christ other than Christ chose him. It was on the basis of God's sovereign decree that the apostle became the apostle. God has done this with all his people. God chose Abraham, God chose Isaac, and God chose Jacob, as we saw, not Esau. Why? Was it because Jacob was chosen because God saw some good in him while he was stealing the birthright? Of his brother? Was it while he was deceiving his father, dressed as Esau in his clothing and covered with lamb's uh, fur on his hands and on his neck? Is that the reason? No. 
Romans 9 tells us it was while they were still in the womb, which symbolizes really a time when neither could choose God. But we know that it was even before the foundation of the earth that God chose Jacob and not Esau. Why did God choose Israel? Have you ever thought about that? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses tells us, he says, The Lord did not set his love on you, that is the people of God in the Old Testament, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. So we see God didn't choose Israel even because they looked like good candidates to be a nation dedicated to God. While most of the world lay in complete and utter darkness until the coming of Christ, one nation and one nation alone had the abundance of God's light, and this nation was the one of God's choosing. They did not choose God, he chose them. The Israelites were made a people by God for himself. Even as Jesus said later to his disciples, I chose you, you did not choose me. If you look at 2 Corinthians, well, now let's keep moving. Let's talk about eternity past here. Election is in eternity past. Now, why does Paul tell us that? I think it's to stress the point that God chose his people in Christ sovereignly and irrespectively, I think, of anything foreseen in them, just as the Westminster Standard said. God didn't choose us because he looked down some corridor of time and foresaw something like faith and therefore chose us on that basis. There was nothing that caused God's people to stand out to God as the basis for which God chose them above any other of God's fallen children in Adam. All of us were dead in sin and trespasses. All of us were corrupt. All of us came forth from the womb speaking lies. All of us uh, went astray from the beginning. All of us were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. So there was nothing outstanding about anyone that they should be chosen above anybody else. It was simply the sheer grace and good pleasure of God that before the creation, there was this divine Trinitarian council voicing his pleasure to create man in his image and that he would choose many of them in Christ to be his people for all eternity. Think about this just for a second, that God chose you Put your name there. God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Did you put your name there, boys and girls? God chose your name before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before him. Why do Arminians kick against this wonderful comfort that we and many others enjoy and derive so much pleasure and comfort from? Uh, why do they kick against this? I think it's probably in, in part because of a misunderstanding of the human will. I think it, the problem, I think where so many Christians go wrong in their understanding of the doctrines of grace isn't here so much in God choosing us, 
but even probably more has to do with the fall, that they do not appreciate the depth and the calamity of the fall. And so many are left with the impression that, they, that everybody still has this choice or vote in, within themselves. But we are not in the condition that our parents found themselves in prior to the fall. Yes, Adam and Eve did have that will within them in the garden prior to the fall to choose good or evil. But since the fall, that will has been utterly corrupted so that if it was left to any of us, as R.C. Sproul says, none of us would choose Jesus. We would all reject him. So calamitous is the fall in Adam. So I think one reason that many go astray is because they don't realize the depth of the depravity that we find ourselves in. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. There's no hope for any of us apart from God choosing us. And so you were chosen in Christ. And, and it's almost as if the, the father has said, my son has shed too much blood for you to go anywhere but to glory. He has endured too many sufferings for you. He has undergone too deep a hell for your pitiful sake. You are chosen in him. And because I have chosen you, you will stand. You will be, as the text says, holy and blameless. We are chosen in Christ so that we would be glorified. And you see this in Romans too, don't you? In Romans chapter 8, where you see the golden chain of salvation, where God begins with the doctrine of election and he ends with glorification. And in the mind of Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it is all strung together. So that that, that which God does in eternity past will be consummated in eternity future. It is all one with God. Now, our election, our being chosen by God is a wonderful source of motivation to live for God and for living a holy life. Because God has said you are chosen to be holy and blameless. Um, you may have been born a sinner, but God has chosen you in a second Adam. The first Adam fell and, and rebelled against God, but God has chosen a second Adam, and he has chosen you in that second Adam. One of the reasons for God's sovereign election is that his people would be set apart on the, on the great day of judgment. We would all stand before the great white throne, and God would separate his people from the rest of humanity. And his people will be a great multitude that no one can number. And we will stand there on that final day before the great tribunal of God. And what does the scripture tell us? We were chosen in him to be holy and blameless. We will stand before a God whose knowledge is great, unfathomable, knows everything, and yet we are blameless before him. Revelation says that we shall be clothed in white garments. This is a picture of righteousness. This is a picture of blamelessness. This is a picture of holiness. The word holy means to be set apart. 
So you were chosen to be set apart in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen you and you should delight in this knowledge. You should delight yourself, uh, young people. This also is something that is to help for those of you who struggle with your assurance as to whether you're a Christian. The doctrine of election is not supposed to shake you of that assurance. It's to help build you up in that assurance. It's supposed to give you the security that you need. What happens is, I think a lot of times, people with very sensitive consciences feel very acutely their own sin and perversity, and therefore they sometimes think, therefore, there is no way I can be a Christian. And yet, the scripture says that we are to look beyond ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to the fact that the Father has chosen us in Jesus Christ. The, the doctrine of grace is supposed to give great comfort and assurance. This is why Arminianism um, is pastorally so unfortunate, is because it, it robs people of the um, comfort the solace that comes knowing that I'm secure in God because God has chosen me. Now, I know that those who lack assurance will turn that around, as we're very good to do, and they'll say, well, how do you know I'm chosen? Well, here's how you are to look and understand that you are one of God's elect. You are not to sit there and introspectively try and think about the secret decree of God in choosing you, you are to look to Christ. That is, the, the assurance of your election comes by looking not at the secret counsel of God, but looking towards Christ himself. That as you look in faith to your Savior, that helps bring assurance that you are chosen in him. To put it another way, um, chosen people over the long haul do not like holiness. They do not like the loveliness of Jesus Christ. But if you will look and persevere in looking to the loveliness of Jesus Christ, you will also, I think, begin to incorporate the doctrine of election personally to yourself. Now, um, let me give you some applications. Do you struggle to view yourself as blameless in the sight of God? Do you struggle to see yourself as holy? Do you think uh, in terms of holiness only in terms of sanctification? Now, there are ways to think of it. Yes, we, we are in degrees, as we read tonight, sanctified to different degrees. But we are still holy by way of God's eternal decree. God has chosen you, and therefore you are set apart for God. Even if you feel like you have not made as much progress in your holiness and sanctification as you would like. So let me encourage you, if you struggle with a sense of condemnation, if you struggle with assurance, if you struggle here with um, a sense of unworthiness, let me ask you to consider the doctrine of election. You have been chosen in Christ to be holy. You have been chosen to be in Christ to be blameless. Therefore, you are blameless in the sight of God. You have been justified. 
because of God's choice of you and because of Christ's death for you and because the Spirit has given you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, as I said earlier, we have to have a profound understanding, secondly, of our unworthiness and of our depravity. But the testimony of God's word also indicates that in Christ we are without blame. In the sight of God, we are the children of God and we are justified. Notice, look, I didn't read this verse, but verse 7 in Ephesians 1. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us. God has lavished his grace upon you in choosing you. It is an infinite grace, an infinite love given to you individually and given to us corporately as the church. This ought to bring real comfort to you as a believer. Some of you struggle because you only think of your Christian life in terms of your failings and sins. And you can't seem to get beyond that in seeing yourself uh, as holy. You see yourself only as guilty. But remember, Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We have been chosen in Christ. Christ has accomplished the work that the Father has sent him to do. And now the Spirit has applied that work to your life and there is no condemnation. Now, if you are not a believer yet in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do stand under condemnation tonight. You do stand guilty before God. But the good news is that God has made full provision for his people in the death of his son. The Bible says, look unto me and be saved, says God. Never does the Bible challenge the unbeliever to search the eternal decrees and be saved. Never does the Bible challenge the unbeliever to try and enter into the secret counsel of God and be saved. But what? The unbeliever is always called and challenged to look to Jesus Christ. There is your salvation revealed. The secret things belong to God and should remain with God. But he has given us Jesus Christ. And therefore, you should look to Jesus. Read the Gospels. Look at Jesus in these Gospel accounts. There, read about his work in the epistles. Read about what he's doing and will do in the book of Revelation. Do you desire to be holy? Do you desire to be without blame? Well, then look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't try and figure out, well, if, whether you're elect or not. Prove that you're one of God's elect by looking to Christ. Place your faith even now in this moment in the Son, and you will be saved. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved immediately. If you were to stand before God, would you be found holy and blameless? If you are with Christ, the answer is emphatically yes. It is based on the grace of God alone in Jesus Christ alone. We are chosen in Christ. One of the things that we also see here, and I'll close with this, we see eternity past. Kissing eternity future here. 
Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in Jesus Christ so that for an eternity future, for trillions and trillions of years, you would wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As Spurgeon said, this is no novelty then that I am preaching. I proclaim to you these strong old doctrines which glow by the nickname of Calvinism, but verily are the revealed truth of God in Jesus Christ. By this truth I make my pilgrimage, Spurgeon said, into the past. And as I go, I see farther and farther. Confessor after confessor, martyr after martyr, standing up to shake hands with me. Taking these things to be the standard of my faith, I see the land of the ancient people with my brethren. I behold multitudes who confess the same as I do and acknowledge that this is the religion of God's own church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our lesson tonight and pray, Lord, that the Spirit might provide comfort to those who need a strengthening of their own assurance of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you chose us just like you chose Jacob. You chose us just like you chose a man named Saul. We thank you that you chose us because it pleased you to glorify yourself in that choice. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.